Hello, I'm Paulette Lee, and you're listening to Woman Worthy, real talk about real issues for women over 60. If you're over 60, you're still worthy of being heard. I'm publishing this episode on Memorial Day, which has been observed in the U.S. since 1868 and was established to honor U.S. military personnel who died while serving in the armed forces. Now, my late husband was in the Navy, but he didn't die while serving. Nevertheless, a flag in his honor flies every Memorial Day in the cemetery of his hometown where his ashes are buried. So I, and probably many others, think of Memorial Day as the day to remember those whom we have loved and lost. It's no secret that part of aging is experiencing grief and loss. At our age, we've most likely lost our parents, possibly our siblings or spouses or life partners, friends and former lovers, and beloved pets. We've also suffered other losses, such as a marriage, a friendship, even having to leave a home where we've lived for a long time, or giving up a lifestyle we once had. And especially this year, more than a million Americans have died from COVID, and now there are more than 100,000 deaths from opioid overdoses. And let's not forget the victims of mass shootings. The usual statistic is that for each death, at least four people are affected. I was widowed more than 12 years ago when I was 63. I was in acute grief for three years, and I still mourn him, sometimes with sweet memories and a smile, sometimes with a sharp pain and a few tears. In my grief journey, I found two truths. Everyone goes through grief in their own way and at their own pace. And grief is a tunnel, not a wall. You have to go through it, but you do come out of it. However, it can be a very difficult trip. Other people liken grief to a wave that gradually changes in height, frequency, and intensity. Sheena Nancy Sarles, founder of Growing Younger Gracefully, in her online article, Navigating Grief in Our Bodies, compares grief to a river. Like a river, she says, sometimes my grief is deep and still or ferocious like rapids. I swim with it and against it. Sometimes I'm next to it or floating or just witnessing the flow. My grief is always with me in some manner because it is part of who I am now. For me, Sarles continues, connecting my grief with my chakras offers me an emotional, spiritual, and physical outlet for my pain. The chakras are the seven main energy centers in our subtle bodies. I found that gentle yoga connected to my chakras allowed me to be present, feel my feelings, and continue to survive and even thrive while immersed in my grief." Now, my own path was less zen. I don't do yoga after having pulled something years ago that never could be fixed. I'm not religious, so there was no relief to be found there. I was no longer working nor raising young children, so I didn't have those distractions. 
I turned to psychologists and found them lacking. I journaled but got weighed down by my own sadness. I joined an online widows group but found that experience too dark. Immediate family members had their own issues and could be there for me only so much. Plus, the dynamic had changed. What worked for me was when I turned to the loving support of extended family and friends and the wisdom of writers I didn't know, but whose words resonated with me. Frankly, I don't remember the titles of the books that helped me through my grief, though I know I went through many that didn't help at all. In 2017, the staff of the PBS NewsHour put together a list of books or poems that helped them survive a period of loss. You can find their recommendations on the PBS website, and I'll provide a link on the Woman Worthy Facebook page. What also helped me was finding something positive in each day and my sense of humor, which thank God I never lost. And of course, the passage of time. We've probably all heard of the five stages of grief identified by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in her seminal 1969 book on death and dying. They are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Now in her writing, Kubler-Ross makes it clear that the stages are non-linear. People can experience these aspects of grief at different times and they don't happen in one particular order. You might not experience all of the stages and you might find feelings are quite different with different bereavements. It's also helpful to know that Kubler-Ross originally described these as stages through which someone with a terminal illness goes. So while they've come to be associated with grief in general, they won't necessarily be what you might go through. Indeed, I didn't. There's also a phenomenon that was once called complicated grief, experienced by about 10 to 15% of the grieving population with women more susceptible. And this grief is extreme and now has its own mental health designation and treatment plans. In both the DSM-5, which is the standard classification of mental disorders in the US, and the International Classification of Disorders 11th Revision used by the World Health Organization, it's called Prolonged Grief Disorder, or PGD. PGD is defined as persistent and pervasive grief response characterized by longing for the deceased or persistent preoccupation or yearning with the deceased accompanied by intense emotional pain such as sadness, guilt, anger, denial, blame, difficulty accepting the death, feeling one has lost a part of oneself, and inability to experience positive mood, emotional numbness, and or difficulty in engaging with social or other activities. Now, we could reasonably say that all those emotional states accompany uh, grief of all varieties, but this is persistent and pervasive. And it's interesting to note that PGD is not considered synonymous with depression. The Center for Prolonged Grief at Columbia University makes this distinction, quote, there is solid evidence that treatment for depression is far less helpful than targeted grief treatment so this difference is important. 
Core symptoms of PGD are persistent yearning and preoccupation with the deceased, whereas core symptoms of depression are pervasive, free-floating sadness and loss of interest and pleasure. These differences can help you distinguish grief from depression, unquote. As it happened in my own case, something occurred while I was in mourning that did cause depression, and I absolutely felt and experienced them as two different things. In the April 22nd, 2021 edition of the New York Times, in her article, The Biology of Grief, Anne Finkbeiner writes that scientists know that grief isn't only psychological, it's, it's also physical. Quote, they know that it causes the brain to send a cascade of stress hormones and other signals to the cardiovascular and immune systems that can ultimately change how those systems function, she says, adding that no one, however, knows how those symptoms act together to create the risks of diseases and even death. One reason is that there have been only a few isolated and small studies conducted, mostly by psychologists with biological interests. She also notes that the National Institutes of Health seldom funds research that straddles the fields of psychology and neuroscience. Finkbeiner's article references Chris Fagundes, a psychologist at Rice University, whose team has found links between grief, depression, and changes to the immune and cardiovascular systems. In one study published in 2019, she writes, he and his team performed psychological assessments on 99 bereaved people about three months after the death of their spouses and then took blood samples. Those who experienced higher levels of grief and depression also at higher levels of the immune system's markers for inflammation. In another study of 65 people published in 2018, Dr. Fagundes and his colleagues found that bereaved spouses who had higher levels of markers for inflammation also had what experts refer to as lower heart rate variability. And that's a characteristic that can contribute to an elevated risk for cardiovascular disease. Continuing with Finkbinder's article, other studies have found effects on the cardiovascular uh, system too. And in one review of 20 studies published in 2020, people who scored higher on psychological measures of grief also had higher levels of certain stress hormones like cortisol and epinephrine. Over time, chronic stress can increase the risk of cardiovascular conditions, as well as diabetes, cancer, autoimmune conditions, and depression and anxiety, unquote. Most of the studies have been to better understand the griever's risks for disease, except for brain studies conducted by Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor at the University of Arizona, and she's the author of the book, The Grieving Brain. According to Finkbinder's New York Times article, in MRI examinations, Dr. O'Connor found three areas of the brain that were triggered by words related to grief, like funeral or loss, and a fourth triggered by pictures of the person who died. Some of the brain areas were involved in the experience of pain, 
others in having autobiographical memories. However, even Dr. Um, O'Connor admitted that a lot of things could make the same areas light up. She's quoted as saying, and the same thing might not make the same areas light up in everyone or in one person over time. Grief, Finkbeiner writes, biological and psychological, is of course the result of another hard-to-study state, human attachment or love. Humans are predisposed to form loving bonds, she quotes Dr. O'Connor, and as soon as you do, your body is loaded and cocked for what happens when that person is gone. So all systems that functioned well now must accommodate the person's absence. For most people, the systems adjust. Our bodies are amazingly resilient, she said. California-based David Kessler, who not so humbly promotes himself as the foremost expert on grief and loss, has what appears to be a pretty successful career advising others on these topics. He's the founder of at least two websites that I could find, grief.com and empathy.com, and in addition to presenting on promoting and selling techniques for managing grief and loss, he has authored six books and co-authored two with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Although Kessler is no stranger to others' grief and loss, his 2019 book, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief, was written following the death of his 21-year-old son. In referencing well-known people who carved meaning out of their loss, he cites Candy Leitner, who in 1980 founded Mothers Against Drunk Driving after her daughter was killed by a habitual drunk driver, and John Walsh, who started the TV show America's Most Wanted after his son Adam was killed. Now closer to my home in Greencastle, Pennsylvania, Mike and Robin Straley have created Leah's Legacy Foundation in memory of their 26-year-old daughter who died from a fentanyl overdose in 2018. In addition to an operations center where the foundation is headquartered and where legacy bags are packed for women in recovery, they've taken over another house nearby, inherited from a family member, that now serves as Leah's gathering place. And the vision is to keep expanding, to keep helping more women lead sober lives. Back to so-called foremost expert, David Kessler. He says meaning after loss is relative and personal, takes time, doesn't require understanding of the cause of the loss, and doesn't make the loss worth it. He also describes loss as something that happens to you. Nobody or nothing else wills it. But meaning is what you make happen. Only you can find your own meaning. And meaningful connections will, he says, but I say may, heal painful memories. His website, grief.com, offers uh, an interesting and concise list of what and what not to say to someone in mourning. I offer a couple of asides here. But he says the best things to say to someone in grief are, I am so sorry for your loss. I wish I had the right words, just know I care. I don't know how you feel, but I am here to help in any way I can. You and your loved ones will be in my thoughts and prayers. My favorite memory of your loved one is, 
I'm always just a phone call away. Give a hug instead of saying anything. We all need help at times like this. I am here for you. I'm usually up late or early if you need anything. Say nothing. Just be with the person. I would add, tell me about so-and-so. What was special to you about him or her? Returning to grief.com's recommendations, the worst things to say to someone in grief are, at least she lived a long life. Many people die young. He's in a better place. She brought this on herself. There is a reason for everything. Aren't you over him yet? He's been dead for a while now. You can still have another child. She was such a good person. God wanted her to be with him. I know how you feel. She did what she came here to do, and it was her time to go. Be strong. And I personally would add, don't impose any religious belief you might have unless you're positive the grieving person shares it. And please avoid any sentence that starts with, at least, one who is acutely grieving is not looking for and indeed doesn't want the silver lining. There is only a dark cloud. Let it be. Honor it. It will lift in its own time and in its own way. Returning to Kessler's book, Finding Meaning, he quotes advice he received from the then head of the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation, who was also a bereaved parent. Quote, I know you're drowning. You'll keep sinking for a while, but there will come a point when you'll hit bottom. Then you'll have a decision to make. Do you stay there or push off and start to rise again? Unquote. And this from me. Don't be afraid to laugh. It's not a betrayal of your loved one and in fact can be an homage to him or her. I'm going to share with you two incidents that I found very funny and that saved me at least briefly from my personal miasma of grief. Shortly after my husband died, one of the friends who'd stayed with me practically night and day for a couple of weeks came to visit me in my new home. Nancy had been raised Catholic, and when she saw the baker's rack shelf unit I'd set up with memorabilia of my husband, she said, I feel like I should genuflect when I pass it. I burst out laughing. Well, later she apologized profusely, so concerned that she had offended me, apparently not remembering my reaction. Not at all, I assured her. I needed a good laugh. And yes, you're right, it does look a, a bit like an altar, doesn't it? A bit much, you think? <laughs> we both laughed. And then my first New Year's holiday after my husband's death. I was working in Africa and needed to get away, as if Ghana weren't away enough. And so I went to Oman on the Arabian Gulf Peninsula. I booked a hotel in the seaside resort of Sur and bought a ticket to their New Year's Eve party. I figured being surrounded by a bunch of foreigners might be a good escape. Well, it turns out the only escape was my own. I dressed and went downstairs to the large patio area where the party was to be held. When I presented my ticket at the check-in desk, I was asked, are you alone? Oh, ouch. Yes, I said I am. I was ushered to a host who looked at my ticket and then at the seating chart. Is it just you? He asked. Oh, God. 
Yes, I answered. Well, I don't see your name, but I'm sure we can find you a place. He motioned over another man who looked at my ticket and asked, Are you by yourself? I couldn't handle it anymore. I rushed out, threw my ticket on the check-in desk, screaming, Yes, I'm alone. My husband died less than a year ago. I stormed back up to my room and started sobbing, and I kept sobbing until hunger overtook me, and I called room service. I ordered stir-fry, that's my go-to meal abroad when I don't know the food, and decided to splurge with apple pie for dessert. Still crying, I waited for room service, watching the party out my window, and, and noting that everyone looked well, Asian. Remember, I was in Oman on the Arabian Peninsula. When the room service attendant arrived with my meal, I asked about the party goers and was told the facility had been rented by a Filipino tour company. So I had a little laugh at that. I wouldn't have fit in then after all anyway. And then I started to eat, still crying, mixing the stir fry with my salted tears and dripping mascara. And then I turned to the apple pie and, and, jam. That was the best apple pie I'd ever had. <laughs> I burst into laughter, knowing that my husband would have loved that moment as well. Some say you don't have to go through grief when there's a loss, that it's a choice. The celebrated psychoanalyst and philosopher Eric Fromm said, quote, to spare oneself from grief at all costs can be achieved only at the price of total detachment, which excludes the ability to experience happiness, unquote. In short, where there is grief, there has been love. I'll close today with this poem by Mary Oliver in Blackwater Woods from her collection American Primitive. Look, the trees are turning their own bodies into pillars of light, are giving off the rich fragrance of cinnamon and fulfillment. The long tapers of cattails are bursting and floating away over the blue shoulders of the ponds. And every pond, no matter what its name is, is nameless now. Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this the fires and the black river of loss whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes, to let it go, to let it go. Thank you for listening. May you find comfort in your morning, peace in its aftermath, and joy in your memories. You have been listening to Woman Worthy, real talk about real issues for women over 60. Tune in wherever you receive your podcasts with new episodes every Monday morning. You can leave your comments by downloading the Podbean app to your device and on the Woman Worthy Facebook page. I'm Paulette Lee. I hope you found this program worthy of your time.